do not think machine learning is some ivory tower. It was thought of as some ivory tower earlier. And now you have seen with the amazing GTM strategy and the product strategy of OpenAI, like so many folks are jumping on the bad wagon. And I do not want the product leaders to be left behind. I want them to have it as one of the items in their toolkit. I'm Himakar Pires. You're listening to Smart Products, a show where we recognize, celebrate, and learn from industry leaders who are solving real-world problems using AI. Welcome to the Smart Products show. My guest today is Ankit Raheja. To start things off, could you tell us a bit about your current role and how you're using AI as a product manager? Absolutely. Currently, I am a lead product manager at CDK Global. CDK Global is the largest car dealership software company in the United States. We power more than 15,000 dealership locations. So, and we are embedded across the whole user journey, starting from the front office. Front office is when you go to a dealership for purchasing a car and getting all the different warranties and insurance options. Second is the fixed operation. The fixed operation is the car services that you get done when you go to a dealership. Then there is some back office. You can imagine dealerships need to take care of like inventory of the parts and the vehicle. And there are many more other things. And last but not the least, these dealerships need uh, massive infrastructures to run. So we are embedded across all these four uh, uh, parts of the user journey. The next question that you mentioned about, uh, uh, like where exactly we have used AI. So, so I have been in the AI space since 2013. It was a combination of data and AI. In past, we have used AI across companies such as Cisco, Visa, and State Compensation Insurance Fund. We have worked number one in the customer support use cases. Then we have worked in market segmentation use cases at Visa. And finally, healthcare fraud detection use cases at State Compensation Fund. Currently, where I'm using uh, AI at CDK, we are leveraging it across multiple uh, ecosystems. Number one is we are trying to match potential customers with potential cards. So it's like a propensity to buy model. Second is predictive service. Basically, what we're trying to do is that when you go to a car dealership and, and sometimes you do not know what services, additional services that you need. And, and you know, you are a busy professional. You have so many other things to worry about. So we want these car dealership employees to be able to recommend you additional services that you may have not even thought about. So that's the second use case. Last but not the least, we are also exploring benchmarking use cases where something like dealers like you. For example, you have one dealership group and you don't know whether, how are you doing? Like, are you doing well? You need to buck up on a few of the things. So, so that's where the benchmarking comes in. So these are the current use cases. And as you know, chatbots are becoming 
more and more uh, prevalent now. So yeah, uh, but right now, just want to focus on the current use cases and the use cases that I've worked on previously. And before this, you had an interesting use case with chatbots at Cisco as well. Absolutely, yeah. I can definitely talk to you a little bit about the chatbot at Cisco. The, let me tell you some context around the issue. Basically, Cisco has a lot of switching products, router products, basically all B2B products. And some of them, as you can imagine, will become defective and, and you want to return those products. However, Cisco identified that a lot of these products do not need to be returned. Some of them are avoidable return. So technically, we were trying to solve an avoidable return problems. This existing way to solve that was that these customers would reach out to that technical assistance center engineer who are technical customer service engineers in, in more layman terms, and they troubleshoot these problems from them and then decide whether this product should be returned or not. We realize AI could be a really big help to these technical assistant center engineers because you can basically have a lot of scale, Number two, it's like an intern. AI is like an intern which is trying to learn new, new things. So as it learns more and more, it will get become better and it will become a lot more helpful for them. And sometimes the technical assistance engineers are not available. That's where this chatbot can come in. So multiple use cases, why we thought AI made sense. And, and we really had great impact by leveraging AI for this use cases. So Cisco and CDK, these are very large companies with a ton of use cases. How did you decide the use cases and, and when to use AI, when to when not use AI, and what kind of framework do you use for that? Absolutely. I'll have a spicy take on this. The first rule of AI is not to use AI in the first place when you're in the discovery stage. You should be able to understand how a human can do this work better. For example, I'll give you two examples. Autonomous driving car. What could happen? Right now, instead of autonomous driving car, what's happening? You're the one who are driving. So you're the one looking around. Hey, here's the signal. Here's this pedestrian. Here's this road. So you should be able to do that first. Another thing for chatbot. Right. So we had this technical assistance engineers who were doing it. So, so this is a very, the framework is pretty simple and universal. AI is only one of the ways that may solve the customer's problem while ensuring its need to drive business value. We have seen so many times uh, right now, as you're seeing with the, the chat GPT hype, more and more products are coming out, but the time will tell how many of them will really be retained. Right now, there's big hype, but eventually retention is the key. So to think about this, I have uh, a very simple framework uh, and, and this is 
overused a lot, but there's a bit nuance to it. The number one is user value. Are you providing real value to customers? Why should these customers hire your solution? Are you helping them with their jobs to be done? So that's the first thing. That's the first constraint that you will look at. Number two, which is very important, you may not even get funding if you don't have a good answer for it. That's your business goal. Just because your CEO said, hey, I see the chatbot, uh, chat GPT is doing really well. You need to really start from the vision, go to the strategy, go to the goals and come with your uh, KPI. And what are your KPI? You want to acquire more users. Number two, you want to retain more users. Number three, you need to monetize these users more by upskill or cross-skill. Or last but not the least, you need to drive more word of mouth net promoter score. So that's the second thing, the business goal. The last constraint that we need to think about is uh, the, the, the technical component of it. Like how comfortable are you okay using a predictive solution versus a deterministic solution. Sometimes, if you can imagine, like you can make a machine go through and read one uh, medical chart for cancer. Would you give all the onus on the machine to make a call? I would not say that. So you still need to have a human in loop. However, in some cases, like recommendation engine for Amazon. There are so many different permutation combinations that can, can, can come with the long tail option. So that's where the, uh, the AI makes sense. It all depends from case to case basis. If you want me to go more into detail, I can definitely go more into detail about the AI use case. Generally speaking, start with, with the focus on customer value and mm -hmm. then map it to your business goal and strategy and have clear KPIs and make sure that your proposed solution could deliver on those KPIs. Absolutely. So how would you compare, let's say more of a deterministic solution. So if you have a, I'm sure at all these companies, you have a very large and long backlog of things that you could do. Does this mean that AI solutions are possibly going to sink to the bottom of the backlog because they are relatively more difficult to quantify or the, you know, the, the time to value might be not as quick as more of a deterministic solution? Sure. So it all depends on the use cases as we have made this possible in this world of building and launching something fast and getting feedback. You can always build a minimum viable product. What I call it is minimum viable algorithm. You can always build a simple model. Uh, for example, if you think about uh, LNM use cases, you can always, there are still, there are so many other machine learning libraries which are already available that you can use to, to prove out the value quickly. And then you can get a buy-in from your leadership. It's all about influencing without authority and how will it drive value. And then like after you get a little bit of buy-in, you start putting more and more bodies on this problem. And so it's a little bit different from the normal product development lifecycle. There's another product development lifecycle called 
AI product development lifecycle, which makes sense a lot here compared to the normal other products. Let's um, talk a bit about the AI product development lifecycle. And also, um, on the back of that, I'd love to pick your brain a bit about designing and building AI MVPs as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I, the good example would be to talk about my experience at Cisco. Yeah, I think let's share the, the case study here. I think that will make a lot more sense here. For AI product lifecycle, the number thing, and, and it is universal. That's why we should really start from first principle. Problem identification. Whether this problem makes sense for us to solve, whether we have the, the, the value that we are able to get from it. And third, it aligns with the strategy. For example, Amazon is not going to start sending rocket in the, in the, in the universe. It will be the other product group. So it all depends like how does it align. The number one is problem identification. Number two is since it's a data product, is about your data sourcing and data preparation strategy. You can start small with taking some sample data and see how it's generating value. So, but as you know, 80% of the time goes into cleaning the data and 20% of the time gets into building the model. So, so data sourcing and data preparation is the number, uh, number two step. The third is the model building. You build the model, you launch the product, the small product in the market, or you do a beta test, depends on you. And then you do tracking on top of it. As you start doing tracking on it, you'll get more and more idea. You will iterate over it and either change the problem, change the data set, or change the model. So it all depends. So at Cisco, basically, we had a triple track agile process. I had a track which was working on uh, discovery of different machine learning models because at Cisco, when we started with, our accuracy was not that great. Uh, so it was a little bit lower than the, the human benchmark. Uh, so you can imagine that there was some uh, hesitation for the uh, uh, technical assistant support engineers to adopt this product uh, wholeheartedly. So one team was working on discovery of the, 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 the new and latest models and how we can improve the accuracy. The second, the track was all about data acquisition. You live and die with this data. That's why you will see here the big tech is spending so much time building their data mode. So, so the next track which can work in parallel is data acquisition. They need to start sourcing the data. They need to start cleaning the data so that can be fed to a model. Last but not the least, delivery of this model. It's not like building a model in the, like in a Jupyter notebook. It's about deploying this model in production so that you can get feedback. So there were three different tracks. If you have thought about a normal product development lifecycle, you will be putting all of them in one track itself. And then you can imagine AI engineers, AI infrastructure, data cleansing is not a cheap affair. That's why 90% of product fail because uh, we are not 
thinking about setting our processes better to really drive quick value uh, and, and have a quick uh, iterative step. It's, it sounds very interesting. It sounds like you had them grouped under different sort of a set of competencies as well from a, from a team structure and organization standpoint, because when you think about model discovery, I'm thinking of ML engineers and data acquisition and cleanup, data scientists and, and delivery of the model, ML ops and CICD folks. So, so how did those three groups sort of collaborate in that kind of environment? Like, you know, since these are three parallel tracks, I'm, I'm guessing the deliverables or the sprints are not necessarily aligned at all times because they might be making progress at different different speeds. Perfect, yeah. Thankfully, I, and it all depends from companies to companies. So context, as you know, is the most important thing in industry. Like you cannot just use best practices of Facebook and apply in a startup. You can't even take sometimes best practices of company like Google and put it into Facebook. They are so different. So thankfully, the way it worked really well in our favor at Cisco was there was a ceremony called uh, Scrum of Scrums. We had one program manager who used to own these three different tracks and we will have a weekly meeting where uh, we, we talk about like what went well, what help we need, any any blockers, etc., etc. So So that's why there was a sync up at a regular cadence and so scrum of scrums that made sense like so that was uh, more of a cisco process but like if you're a startup sometimes the same person is uh, the ml op is done by the, the data analyst as well as the data scientist it's the same person doing everything it all depends i want to talk a bit about bringing these solutions more from a, like a go-to-market and distribution standpoint. Are you working with 15,000 car dealerships now, right? How does that process look like? Do you do like, you know, incremental releases going out to these folks? Are they part of like, you know, product discovery? Could you talk a bit about that as well? You know, you've touched on an extremely important point and I'm realizing that industry is still in the the discovery and development stage and we don't give a lot of weightage to the GTM but you have seen the the beauty of the GTM strategy that OpenAI had when they, they first of all launched the product really quickly they already had a tie-in with Expedia of the world and, 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 and Instacart also so they had their GTM ramped up really well so, and for us also at CDK, as a B2B SaaS uh, giant, GTM is taken extremely seriously. So for a few of the products, what we have done, number one, we take uh, help of these uh, customers to get an early access to do some kind of a code development with them. We did it for one of our uh, product offering called Data Your Way. It's a data product. It's not an AI ML product, but that's what we did. We got their feedback. And we launched the product within a few uh, months after working with them. After the core development phase, next came for us the uh, beta stage. There we expanded our sample set to around 15 dealer groups. There's a difference between dealerships and dealer groups. One dealership group 
can have multiple dealerships under them. So we work with 15 uh, dealerships for our beta stage. And finally, we launched our product after they being in beta for for, for a few months. And now the product is in GA. So it all depends. The same thing applies to AIML products also. You, you co-create with them, give them some like extra uh, credits or, or give it them on a discount so that they can help you decide because it's a skin in the game for them also. And then you can put in your proper telemetry in place and then you can expand and make it a lot more better. How do you facilitate communication and collaboration during that process? What kind of metrics do you look at? What does the feedback loop look like? Absolutely. How the, the first one to how to facilitate this conversation is like, I think again, it all depends from company to company. Like it depends on the size of the company. I was spread across multiple products. So there I leverage my amazing customer success management team and customer sales team who really had a one-to-one relationship with these customers. I would also go into the meeting, but they will be the project manager. We'll have our spreadsheet where we'll be talking about, hey, these are the feedback that we got from the, from these customers. These were the, the, the pluses. These were the, the deltas. And then we'll be having these bi-weekly meeting with these uh, uh, select customers and we'll tell them that, hey, this is something that we are working on to, to keep them uh, in communication. Metrics, what we were tracking was that we had a really good funnel system that, hey, we started first with uh, 30 prospective beta dealers, dealership groups, thinking that many of them will be busy with so many other things. Then we knew that this will number will go down. We wanted a critical mass of 15 plus. So we, we got it. We have seen some failures in some products. What has happened was that we only started with one or two dealership groups. I think that's a recipe for disaster because if you start with two or three, it's so obvious, but as you know, hindsight is always 2020. Like always start with a big group and, and expect that your customers have busy life. You are just embedded in part of their solution. To all this. So what kind of like specific business and custom metrics do you track and are they any different from your traditional SaaS products? Oh yeah, uh, definitely. So uh, that's why there's a nuance to these different metrics. So first of all, the first one remains exactly the same. These are your business and customer metrics. Uh, to give you an example again for the Cisco, number one was that like how many additional cases that you are able to handle with a chatbot. Imagine what can happen is that uh, the chatbot can come in and can try out some use cases, some cases for you before sending it to a human being. So like, like how much uplift you can do with this. Number two, sometimes you don't need to staff so many additional customer service engineers. So how much it helping reduced in, in the personal costs. Another business metric could be that how much reduction in the avoidable returns that you are able to get through that. So these are the two high-level metrics. The third metric, again, the third business metric is your net promoter score. Alexa does a great job in it. Like sometimes what happens is Alexa would be asking you, 
how much would you rate this response from one to five? So we thought, why don't we learn from Elixir and start leveraging it so that we had a net promoter score also going in. So these were just the business metrics. What changes in the uh, AIML space is the next thing that shows up is your your algorithmic metric, which is like when you're trying to do like the the modeling, you need to worry about like, hey, what's the, the simple metrics like accuracy, precision, recall? It all depends. Like, and it depends from you. What do you care the most about? Do you care more about accuracy versus whether you care about precision, whether you care about recall? What I have seen is that like sometimes people forget about it, that which metric is the most important from models and you can solve for the, uh, the wrong thing. For example, for some places, like uh, when you're doing cancer detection, you need to be really careful about the false positive metric. Sorry, false negative metric. The false negative metric is if somebody has cancer and if you don't tell them can that they have cancer. That's a bigger problem than they going into the the cancer treatment and getting a chemo. They will not be happy, but hey, they're, they're still alive. But if somebody uh, takes a lot of time to get the cancer detection done, I think that's the bigger problem. So we have to be really careful about this, which model metric we should optimize for. Last but not the least is the ML infrastructure metrics. Basically, sometimes you need to worry about latency, right? Sometimes do you want a fast model or you want an accurate model? Because there are two different things. Do you want your model to be available on edge or you want it to be on cloud? So you need to worry about the infrastructure metrics also. To summarize, three kinds of metrics, business and customer metrics, algorithmic metrics, and ML infrastructure um, and, and production based. So I presume the first and last buckets, customer metrics and infrastructure metrics are more visible, but algorithmic metrics tend to be less so and sometimes they reflect in the other two. Do you keep the customer, especially early adopters or like, you know, development partners in loop about algorithmic metrics and what is the level of conversation there as you share this with the business groups? Oh, perfect. Again. Cisco was an amazing playbook that I can talk to you about. Like, so, and this came so often. Number one rule, like I follow this product management guru and I'll give a shout out to him. His name is Shreyas Doshi. He says, you are not deaf complete unless you have your telemetry built in. So the step one for making sure that you are GA in fact, we have it at TDK also that you need to build your telemetry in place. If you have your telemetry built in place, things become a lot more easier later. I'll give you an example for Cisco. A chatbot, right? A chatbot is there and it is giving a prediction of, of, of saying that, hey, this product should be returned. We will be having this weekly meeting with our developer and we'll tell the developer that, hey, this is where the chatbot is telling that we should return this product. But the human, when he's coming in and he is checking it, they're saying, no, it should not be returned. 
So we had the Tableau dashboard that was capturing the model scores as well as the, uh, the human recommendation. And whenever there was a delta, we will be surfacing that to the development team. They, they will take it, they will retrain the model, and then like, that's how we will keep on iterating over it. So, but the first thing is, if you don't have telemetry in place, you will be thinking, you will be regretting why I don't have that built in first place. So step one, in ML model, have your telemetry built in place, store it in some database, have some kind of a way to surface those results because otherwise it's just opinion. That's really good advice. On the back of that, are there any other advice you'd like to offer to product leaders, product managers who are interested in getting into AI and, and building AI-powered solutions at their work? Yeah, definitely. The, the first thing that I will request our product leaders is like, I'm all about being as transparent and as inclusive as possible here. Do not think machine learning is some ivory tower. It was thought of as some ivory tower earlier. And now you have seen with the amazing GTM strategy and the product strategy of OpenAI, like so many folks are jumping on the bad wagon. And I do not want the product leaders to be left behind. I want them to have it as one of the items in their toolkit. Like, But this is not your front and center. The first thing that you need to understand is how and where can you use AI? I'll give you a few examples here. Something like a SaaS product. Are you in a SaaS product layer? For example, like Amazon recommendation engine, Coda AI, Notion AI. That's like a SaaS product adding AI to their product. Second one could be algorithmic product, Anthropic. OpenAI, Facebook Llama, like that's the second place where you can think about like where you can use AI. Third is AI infrastructure software companies. There's a company called Cube. That's one example. The fourth is AI infrastructure hardware companies. As you can imagine, NVIDIA's uh, stock is at all-time high. Again, it's a trillion-dollar company. All because of with GPUs and then with AI and with Snowflake partnership, yeah, it's taking to the next level. So, to think first of all, which space do you operate in, or where do you think that you can use AI? Number two, start small by leveraging data because at least you can have some kind of proof of concept to decide whether AI makes sense. Because what's happening now in the industry is that we are able to, number one, use a lot of annotation services, which can annotate data for you. Number two, you can also create your data synthetically. There are a lot of use cases there. Last but not the least, check out these amazing websites. One is artificialintelligentnews.com. You can look at uh, Andrew Eng's uh, batch at Deep Learning AI. He really comes up with amazing content. And last but not the least, you can always ask Chat GPT, which is trained on uh, billions of parameters, to, to tell you that what could be some use cases. At least it's the first step. Okay, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. 
Is there anything um, else you'd like to share as well? The only thing that I would probably like to share is about if you are a car dealership company and so CDK has shared an amazing AI survey and I will provide you him Kara in the, the case note. So if any car dealerships is listening to it, they can always look at that link and yeah, and, and we are excited to talk to you. Smart Products is brought to you by Hydra.ai. Hydra helps product teams explore how they can introduce AI-powered features to their products and deliver unique customer value. Learn more at www.hydra.ai forward slash smart products.